Claire of Assisi once said, our labor here is brief, but the reward is eternal. Do not be disturbed by the clamor of the world, which passes like a shadow. Welcome to the ninth episode of St. Dimpness Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because sometimes when we're suffering, we don't believe it will ever be different, but we can be assured that in reality, our labors are brief and thanks be to God, they will be so worth it in the end. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, an email from Alejandro. Quote, I've often heard people with mental illness be treated as attention seekers, which made me wonder to what extent is giving so much attention to someone's illness positive? Does it eventually work in the opposite way and make them feel victimized or weak instead of encouraging them to overcome the struggle? How do I know if I'm making someone feel pitied rather than accompanied? This is a fantastic question with a somewhat complicated answer. So thanks so much for tossing it in the hat, Alejandro. I'm going to hit this in a couple chunks. So chunk number one. In general, when people say those suffering from mental illness are attention seekers, they are almost always using that term as a pejorative. And what I mean by that is they are using it as a way of saying people should be able to solve their problems and their symptoms uh, they're experiencing only exist because they aren't solving them and they want other people to fix the problem for them. Of course, we know this isn't how mental illness works. People generally don't want to experience the feelings and symptoms associated with mental illness. It feels terrible. And most times we would be willing to do just about anything to feel better if only we knew where to start. So to be clear, for the majority of people suffering from depression, anxiety, symptoms related to traumatic experiences, etc., it is not simply an attempt to get attention. They need attention. They need help. It's not some fake thing just to get people to take care of them. Okay, chunk number two. Sometimes when we're doing therapy with someone who is depressed and after weeks and weeks it becomes clear they aren't doing anything to help themselves feel better, like not trying the suggested coping skills, not working on the small steps to move forward, not really interested in exploring things from a different angle. And if we feel stuck as a therapist, we might ask this question. Now, I know this might sound weird, but bear with me. What are you getting out of staying depressed? Okay, so I know that question may feel like a bit of an attack, but what it's really doing is trying to turn the situation around and have the person explore more deeply why they aren't taking the steps to try and feel better. Is being depressed getting them love from a parent who never showed them love earlier in life? Is being depressed keeping them home from work where they've been experiencing some sort of bullying or negative interaction? Is being depressed giving them a reason to avoid some responsibility or task that they have anxiety over engaging in? Remember, this isn't a question we would ask someone who is depressed and taking steps to work through their depression, but just not getting better, but rather someone who seems unwilling to try anything after several attempts. And it's worth noting that decreased motivation is obviously a symptom of depression. So that might be a part of the blame, and it kind of takes some exploring and clinical skills to decipher who may benefit from this question and who it wouldn't help at all. As a friend or family member, however, I would say it's always good to accompany people and to help them. And spending time with them isn't going to make them weaker, so long as you always pay attention to your own mental health and set up boundaries to keep yourself healthy as well. Next up, Rebecca signed up for Twitter just to DM and ask, My friend just shared a video of a priest on the dangers of psychology, and I was wondering what your take is on Catholics and others who, who view psychology as dangerous. 
Well, they're wrong. And Rebecca, I'm so happy that you went back to Instagram after sending this DM because it is safer over there, like you mentioned. (laughs) I know there's some misconceptions about therapy, counseling, and psychology, partly from TV and movies and partly because there's some idea that therapy is dismissive of faith or might suggest divorce or tell people religion is some sort of crutch. And I mean, I guess it can be those things, but it almost never is. Most therapists want to help you from within your framework for life. If your faith is important to you, your therapist will respect that. If you go into couples counseling and make it clear that you're Catholic and don't see divorce as an option, a therapist isn't going to suggest it unless there's a need for separation in the in the event that, you know, someone needs to be safe. I mean, even I would suggest it in that situation. It's just important to let your therapist know your values, expectations, and what you hope to achieve through therapy at the start. And this would most likely come out in the first session assessment. And then the therapist best knows how to move forward in a way that respects your values and your faith. So if you feel like you might be interested in therapy, don't listen to those who see therapy and counseling as dangerous. Go for it. If you find it helpful, keep on going. And if you aren't finding it helpful, change to a different therapist and give it another shot or stop whatever works for you. So each episode, I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request. And today I'm here to talk about Our Lady of Lords. In 1858, Our Lady appeared to St. Bernadette Subaru near Lourdes, France, where she was gathering firewood with a friend. She appeared on 17 occasions that year, with the big reveal coming when she told St. Bernadette that she was the Immaculate Conception. In January 1862, Pope Pius IX authorized the veneration of Mary in Lourdes, and away we went. Since 1858, loads of people, maybe you're one of them, have gone to the site of the apparition to follow the instructions of Mary given to St. Bernadette to drink at the spring, and wash in it. And as you well know, there have been loads and loads of miracles at the site and through the use of the water from all over the site. Approximately 7,000 people have asked to have their seemingly miraculous experiences examined, and currently 69 have been officially declared as scientifically inexplicable miracles. And so, I'd like to recommend asking for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary under the title of Our Lady of Lords for all of your healing needs, both physical and mental, both spiritual and emotional. We see that Mary intercedes for us in scripture, and we see that Jesus responds pretty promptly. So always go to Mary, always ask for her help, and she will answer. Our Lady of Lords, pray for us all. We like to close this part of the podcast out with a prayer, so let's go. O ever immaculate virgin, mother of mercy, health of the sick, refuge of sinners, comfortress of the afflicted. You know my wants, my troubles, my sufferings. Look upon me with mercy. When you appeared in the grotto of Lords, you made it a privileged sanctuary where you dispense your favors and where many sufferers have obtained the cure of their infirmities, both spiritual and corporal. I come, therefore, with unbounded confidence to implore your maternal intercession. My loving mother, obtain my request that all listening to this podcast might find peace amidst darkness and suffering in our lives. I will try to imitate your virtues so that I may one day share your company and bless you in eternity. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy.
Anonymous gets us started. Could you speak a little bit about alcoholism and substance abuse? Dealing with a loved one who is alcoholic is incredibly tough, and it's taken me a while to understand my wounds from it and how they affect my relationships. Substance abuse and dependence is a problem that touches or has touched pretty much all of our lives in one way or another. And the way relationships play out in light of substance abuse and dependence obviously impacts our ability to carry on healthy relationships moving forward. And when it comes to those of us suffering from mental health issues, the rate of substance abuse and dependence is high. In fact, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, approximately 50% of those suffering with mental illness will also experience a substance use disorder at some point in their lives and vice versa. This shouldn't come as a surprise because if you need mental health treatment but fail to reach out and get connected or have a difficult time doing so for some reason, it only makes sense that you would turn to substances to self-medicate, drinking to anxiety, for example, or even using something like methamphetamine to help with the lack of motivation and energy that comes with depression. Using substances when suffering from mental health issues is a short-term solution that leads to a serious long-term challenges. As you can guess, uh, like drinking helps you forget about your depression for a bit, but alcohol is a depressant on your system. So with the long haul, you're actually more depressed, which is why drinking and antidepressants don't go so well together. So back to the issue at hand. Yes, living with and trying to be in relationship with those who are suffering from a substance use disorder can be a constant struggle. The relationship has a tendency to be an unhealthy one, one where you can't really depend on the other person. And the way you survive is by adjusting how you relate to them to help you avoid getting hurt. But then you learn to be in relation to others through the way you had to adapt in that relationship, which which leads to unhealthy relationships moving forward. It's a terrible cycle that has to be addressed. Like it seems you've done or at least started to do, which is awesome, job well done. Some great ideas are getting into therapy to help you learn how to be healthier in relationships moving forward by exploring why you developed your way of being in relationship previously or getting involved in groups that bring together family members touched by substance use disorders to help learn from others on how they moved forward, Al-Anon comes to mind. Either way, if you've been involved in relationships touched by substance abuse or dependence, getting help for yourself, whether or not the person using gets help, is always a good idea. Substance use impacts the entire family, the entire group of friends, and the entire community, not just the person who is using. And that's super important to remember because whether or not the person decides to get sober and move forward in recovery, we have to get ourselves on the right path and we have to get on for our own health's sake. At Healed Healing asked, there are trauma-informed therapists, but are there trauma-informed priests for spiritual direction or spiritual advice? Short answer, I don't know, but first let's explain what trauma-informed means. Trauma-informed care means treating a whole person, taking into account past trauma and the resulting coping mechanisms when attempting to understand behaviors and treat the patient. So often we tend to take someone's behavior and reaction to things at face value, and uh, that can lead to quite a bit of blame. Like, why is this person always on edge? What's wrong with them? A trauma-informed approach would uh, be to inquire about past traumas and include that in our conceptualization of why a person may be acting or reacting in a certain way. It's super important and healthy because it recognizes that we are all the result of what has happened to us in our lives. Our past trauma and experience shape who we are and how we relate to others moving forward. And being trauma-informed helps to better understand why someone is the way they are, if that makes sense. So training therapists to be trauma-informed is a huge deal right now in mental health. And in reality, we should have been approaching things this way all along. But as we continue to better understand how the past in 
impacts our life moving forward, it helps to serve as a reminder that we need to consider all the past trauma we have all experienced. As for trauma-informed priests, I'm not sure, and if, if anyone knows if they know how to find a priest like this, or if you are a priest like this, let us know. Uh, but I will say that I've been super excited to hear two different priests tell me that they're starting in on an online counseling program, like a grad school thing online, to help them become better informed on how to help parishioners deal with their mental health. These two priests will surely be trauma-informed through that training, and I'm thinking that as more priests see that Catholics struggling with mental health, emotional problems, and relationship issues keep coming to them, it'll become more apparent how valuable training and counseling will be. Jessica wraps us up today, quote, I've struggled with anxiety and depression most of my life and have at times been medicated and always been open to therapy. I've had it very well managed over the last couple of years. This year, I finally agreed to be a parish youth minister and sacrament coordinator. It also, uh, it's been a year full of blessings in ways I never could have imagined, but it's also awakened my anxiety. I'm uh, constantly anxious about my ministry and I've never felt like I'm doing enough. I struggle with taking the time to not work. Uh, and feel like I'm constantly on. I'm back in therapy and have an excellent support system, but I don't know how to discuss this uh, with my pastor or even if I should. My anxiety is certainly affecting my ministry, and I feel like my ministry is playing a key role in destroying my mental health. Guys, take a minute uh, to pray with me for Jessica and every single person who gives their life to the church, and especially the youth in the church, that they can find peace and support in their incredibly valuable positions. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. So first off, thank you for giving your life to this incredibly important work. And second, dang, it's hard for me to say if you should bring it up to your pastor since I don't know him. If he's generally open and supportive, I'd say go for it. But if he's a bit more cold or wanting people to take care of their work without getting him involved, maybe a different route would be better. The most important thing here is that you, me, and all of us need to make sure we have a group of people doing the same work as us who we can trust, get support from, and discuss these kind of issues with. You may have already done this, but I think it's super worthwhile to reach out to other youth ministers in the area to develop a support group for you and all of them. Having this kind of support group isn't only important in work, but also experiences that we have in life, like the substance use thing we mentioned earlier, uh, or people who've had miscarriages, been through war and experienced that kind of trauma, etc. There's just something so powerful in having someone who gets it to sit with and share with and feel validated and understood. I'm so glad that you're open to getting help and you've already done so in the past. It really bodes well for it helping again in the future. But the thing about always feeling on is the big thing to work on here. I know people who work for the church often work nights and feel like they always have to be available, but boundaries have to be applied here. If you're doing youth group stuff till 10 p.m., you got to make sure to adjust your hours the next day to help keep you on track if you're able to. I know working for the church must feel like you should be willing to do more without being paid for it because it's all for Christ and his people, but you can really 
really end up driving yourself to the brink that way. You're helping souls, of course, but you're also doing it within the context of a job. And I think that's important to remember. You deserve to be compensated for the time that you're on. You deserve to be able to not work more hours than you're going to get paid for. And you deserve every other protection and assistance that people in another job would receive. I'm guessing there are uh, youth ministers listening right now who might have some great ideas on how best to do this based on their experience. And if so, send me your thoughts and I'll pass them along. I'll keep praying for you and thank you again for your incredible help for the youth in our church. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your question and situation if you'd like me to address it in the future. I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Infna.